You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Greetings, uh, I'm Jim Finley. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to our time together turning for guidance to the Christian mystic Mictel de Magdeburg. As Mictel uh, continued writing the flowing light of the Godhead over the years, on up to her death, really, uh, she continues to share these ecstatic exchanges between herself and God. And, uh, as, and as we read or as we listen to these exchanges, uh, even though we may not be experiencing uh, God's uh, intimate oneness with us, with the depth or purity that she does, the extent to which we're moved by the beauty, by the poetic beauty of that union, bears witness that we're already on this love path of which he speaks and offers us guidance, being receptively open to it, that it might uh, deepen uh, throughout the course of our life. And uh, as the years went on, uh, these exchanges continued, but she begins to layer in uh, other aspects of love. For example, she starts layering in the difficulties and challenges of everyday life in which this love is experienced. You know, the beginnings, they didn't take vows. They lived in community, but they did vote for someone to act as their superior or guide. And so she talks about the troubles of just the politics of things and personalities and, and so on, life, just the complexities and challenges of life. And also she talks about problems with the church, the fear of persecution. We said earlier, you know, the Dominicans supported Eckhart and so on, supported the Beguines. But the church um, were, were persecuted the Beguines and uh, eventually kind of sh shut the, the movement down for reasons be due to the fact they weren't under, directly under the bishop and they weren't directly an, under a religious superior under vows and so there was that. And being questioned, like, what right do you have, an uneducated woman, to be claiming to know God's love in this way? There was all of that. And uh, then she goes also, which I want to focus on here, into kind of deeper dimensions of this love. And um, in, in these deeper dimensions of this love, uh, the, first, the first theme I want to focus on and explore with you is found in uh, section 24 of the second book, which is on page 91 and 92 uh, of the text. She begins at the bottom of page 91. Lord, Heavenly Father, between you and me, there goes unceasingly an imperceptible breath in which I come to know and see many marvels and inexpressible things. Unfortunately, they do me little good because I'm such a worthless vessel that cannot endure your slightest spark. And so she, she starts out by acknowledging this sweetness of this breath between herself and God that's always there, that's always there, but also in her wavering ways that she's not able to consistently be one with this love breath between herself and God that's always there. 
And so the path then is being healed from these hindrances to move into an ever more habitual underlying awareness of the ever-present generosity of God's loving presence given to us as our very life. It's the passage of time and of all things in our nothingness without God. And in, in this then, she helps us to understand that the, the degrees of this process of the purification of, of this love. And she speaks about it in the terms of bound love and unbound love. <clears throat> Concerning unbound love, she writes in this same section, unbound love <clears throat> dwells in the senses because it is still mixed in such a way with earthly things that a person can cry out, love is in grace, distant in the senses, has, alas, not yet climbed atop the soul. That is, this love is not to be understood as a love that I'm able to feel, although it spills over into feelings. It's the love that's in this, in this communion with God that is the very life of God shared with us as our life. And the very senses, although it spills over into the senses, the senses aren't capable because they're finite, are not capable of sustaining that ever-present love that's always there as life itself. And so insofar as it's still mingled with the senses that wavers and comes and goes, there's the inconsistency of the ability to abide in the love that eternally abides with us moment by moment by moment. She continues, many people have fallen because their soul remained unwounded. Solomon and David received the Holy Spirit in their human senses, but when the senses changed, they fell into false love. God knows their soul had not sunk into the lowest depths beneath all creatures, nor was it wounded by the powerful part of love, for he who never tasted the best wine often whoops it up the most this unbound love then, there is a kind of a failing and of just through human weakness. But the failing doesn't go so deep that we fall through the bottom of human failing into the infinite love that is waiting for us and sustains us in the midst of our failing. We go into the failing and then we stop there. We kind of get stuck in this wavelength of failing. And uh, we don't pass all the way through the failing into the depth of the love that sustains us unexplainably in our failing. And this she refers to as bound love. Uh, Concerning bound love, that is this bound love of God bound to us invincibly precious in our wayward ways. Concerning bound love, she says, bound love dwells in the soul and transcends the human senses and concedes the body nothing at once. It is restrained and very calm. It lowers its wings and listens for the inexpressible voice and gazes into the incomprehensible light and works with great desire to achieve the will of its Lord. If the body can still flap its wings, the soul can never reach the heights that are attainable for human beings. In this bound love, the wounded soul becomes rich and her external sense is very poor, because the more riches God finds in her, the deeper the humility lowers herself because of the true nobility of her love. 
I cannot imagine a person bound by the deepest stirrings of powerful love falling into serious sin, for the soul is bound. She has to love. May God thus bind us all. I'd like to reflect on this. Using this poetic imagery, because this is so subtle, these poetic metaphors, that if the soul can flap its wings, that if it can ascend by its own powers to try to draw closer to God, as long as it relies on its own powers to make the ascent into God, then it falls short of this breath in which the soul and God are unexplainably entwined forever with one another. We were saying in an earlier reflection, too, that I think relevant to this, is that when they asked Jesus, like, what is the greatest commandment that is out of all these beautiful things that you say about God and God's presence in our life, what is it that if we would uh, put our mind and our heart in alignment with that, everything else you say would fall into place? And Jesus responded, not with something we're supposed to believe and not with something that we're supposed to live up to, he says, is that the greatest commandment is, is that, with, that we love God with all our soul, with all our mind, and all of our strength. And so the lesson I see in the light of Mictel, she's saying, see, is, to love, is to love God with all my soul. I don't know what all my soul is. I only have a partial understanding of my soul that is the interiority of myself. I don't know what all my heart is, what all my mind is, but God does know. Because God creates the totality of my mind, one with God and my nothingness without God. The totality of my soul, one with God and my nothingness without God, one with in every, part, every aspect of my being. So I surrender myself over then, uh, to this love and give myself to this love. Because in the acknowledgement that I really don't know what all my soul is, all my might is, all my strength is, in the acknowledgement that I really don't know, and the humility of that acknowledgement is the portal or the opening through which God accesses us and reveals to us uh, the fullness of our heart, of our mind, of our strength, which is really the very fullness of God being poured out and given to us is our very life as the beloved, as the one in our nothingness uh, without God. I think it helps too when she talks like this, again, to keep in mind that, um, that we're, we live our life in incremental realizations of infinite generosity that the infinite generosity of God is being infinitely poured out and completely given away in and as the intimate immediacy of the gift and the miracle of our lives and our nothingness without God. And that infinite generosity is being poured out whole and complete, even in the least, most limited stirrings of love in our heart. So, for example, you know, the very first moments in which an infant uh, smiles, as the parents lovingly looking into the infant's eyes, smiling with delight. Even though that infant's smile of love is so limited, 
The essence of the smile is the limitless love of God, incarnate in and as the infant's smile, which makes the infant's smile so disarming to the parents, its limitless nature in the limits. And also, this infinite love is being poured out into the parents. Certainly, as adults, they're certainly more developed in the capacity to love and be loved, but being finite, being finite, their finite love for their child and their love for each other is compared to the infinite love of God, an infinitely less than that love. And yet it's that infinite love itself that's giving itself to them, holding complete in the limitations of their love, which renders the ordinariness of their day-by-day love holy and godly, uh, incarnate infinity, intimately realized little by little, now here, now there, in the ways of our life. And so this, from our standpoint then, throughout our whole life, there's this unbound love. Unbound meaning is carried away by the senses. It's carried away by situations. It's carried away by reactivity. It's still very much caught up in all of this. But bound love, Bound love dwells in the soul and transcends human senses and concedes the body nothing that it wants. It is restrained and very calm. How so? It's restrained and calm because it resides in the abyss-like depths of God's infinite love beyond the senses. But although it spills over into the senses with tremors of love and intimations of love that overflow of those of those tremors and intimations are seen as the overflow of the love that's deeper than the senses, the deeper than the mind can comprehend, deeper than the strength can reach. And we learn to dwell there this way. I also think another way to look at this understanding about bound love or insight about bound love, and it's, it's, um, it's certainly in prayer, the rendezvous with God, we can see it's a, it's a beautiful way to understand the subtlety of the quiet time with God, this sweet surrender to God's love surrendered over to us unexplainably forever and the sincerity of our sitting, the sincerity of our fragility like this. But there's also another dimension to this, and I think this has to do with her life as a begin, is that bound love is that you... I'll use some examples. Let's say married love, for example. Married love, every couple knows, is unbound in many ways. Uh, They get caught up in the waywardness of tripwires and have to sort all these things out as best they can. But, But it can reach a certain point where the love is bound. That is, it's bound that the beloved is really realized to be the to be the beloved infinitely beyond anything one can comprehend, and yet is somehow present to you in your love for the beloved. And when the beloved returns the favor in all your wavering, unbound ways and sees in you that you're bound to each other in the freedom of love. Same with parenting. But it's also true, say someone's first starting out on the path of being called to be a poet, uh, there's a lot of unbound love, the fluctuations of fidelity to poetry. But then there's the inner imperative. One must do it. One cannot not be faithful, being surrendered over to the flow of the poetic. So too with some musicians and composers. 
performers, so too uh, with some artists. They cannot not do it. That, that they're bound in obediential fidelity to a sweet surrender of a love or a gift that channels itself through them. So you get a sense when you see their painting or you, like with Mictel too, you hear the rhythms of her voice. You get a sense it's the rhythm and cadence of God's voice uh, flowing through her bound love, the imperative that she could not not surrender over and channel this voice to the community. And then centuries later to us, how it touches us in this way. So we, it can be a community, it can be a, a classroom full of students, it can be the community. It's where you've been impelled by a love that binds you, but in fidelity to the binding, you're free, you're free. May God thus bind us all, that we might be so free to be bound by this love, because God freely chooses to be bound to us as the beloved, and in the reciprocity of this love, our destiny is fulfilled in the intimacy of our body, the intimacy of our day-by-day -day life. There's a second insight that she gives into these more paradoxical realms and depths of love. And it, it, the second, this second way is found, uh, it's on page 226 of the, of the text. Section one of book six. She begins this way. When because of a real need to achieve a practical result, a person toils with the same love with which he prayed, then he is a human God with Christ. But what one botches up and does not to no practical purpose and out of no real need is all dead to God. So there is this um, purity of intention in which we surely seek to do God's will by doing what love calls and asks us to do day by day in our life. When a person purely for the love of God and not for earthly rewards instructs the ignorant, converts sinners, consoles the despondent, and brings those in despair back to God, then he is God, then he is God, the Spirit, with the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> ah, that is a very blessed person who does everything humanly possible that is praiseworthy in God's eyes, with that same love for God, praise, and with the constant good intention of his whole heart. That person is one whole person with the Holy Trinity. So there's that. There's the gift of that. I praise the Lord. But then she says, but the dust of sin that settles upon us constantly, even against our will, Quickly is quickly annihilated by the fire of love when the glance of the eyes of our soul touches the Godhead with a lonely sighing of sweet desire that no creature can resist. I'd like to reflect on this. And she says that when she goes to prayer, I want to read what she says first, which seems hard to figure out exactly what this means. Then I'd like to Let's see what it means to me. See what you think it means to you and what the truth is that she's getting at here about love's ways. When I, the most wretched of persons, go to my prayer, I deck myself out according to my worthlessness. I dress myself in the foul puddle that I myself am. Then I put on the shoes of precious time that I wasted day after day 
Then I gird myself with the suffering I have caused. Then I put on a cloak of wickedness of which I am full. Then I put on my head a crown of secret shameful acts that I have committed against God. After this, I take in my hand the mirror of truth's knowledge. Then I look at myself in it and see who I really am. Alas, I see nothing but utter misery. I prefer to wear these clothes rather than to have my wish regarding all earthly possessions. Yet they cause me such distress and my wretched fury that I would rather be clothed with hell and crowned with all the devils if this could happen through my fault of mine. Alas, how very often do robbers of our own fickleness come and strip these clothes from us when we are pleased with ourselves. In our guilt, we declare ourselves innocent. I'd like to reflect on this. Like, I have to make sense of this. It isn't, as it first might sound, like giving herself over to feelings of low self-esteem and self-loathing, that she's wicked and that she's worthless, and that it isn't, it, it, it's, it's more intimate than that. I want to give two examples of this. You know, and I did a uh, online course with CAC on mystical sobriety and kind of walk through the steps of the 12 steps of recovery. And the first step of recovery begins, this is for the addict who's in the midst of their addiction. And they say, we have come to admit that our lives have become unmanageable, that we're powerless over alcohol. It begins really uh, when they hit bottom and they come to the bankruptcy of their ability to deliver themselves from the addiction to alcohol that's destroying them and taking away their life. And so they begin by admitting it, not because they're choosing to uh, say kind of shameful things about themselves. They're admitting it because they're in the midst of the shame-filled powerlessness to deliver themselves from uh, how they're being carried away and destroyed and undone by their addiction like this. It goes even deeper. Not only do they then say, yes, I, I admit this. So if it's all up to me, I'm finished. If I admit this, it's like, it's like admitting to despair, unless there's another way that a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity. That maybe there's a power that can achieve in me what I'm powerless to achieve but it can achieve it only by admitting that I'm powerless. And then I have to hand my life over to the care of that power to deliver me, to achieve in me the deliverance that I'm powerless to achieve. So here, here's the message in it, if we look at it this way. That when we admit our powerlessness in the very midst of ongoing powerlessness, in the very act of admitting it, to the higher power. The deep admitting to the higher power of our powerlessness is the portal through which the, the, this love power of the divine accesses us and takes us to itself as unexplainably precious in the very midst of our brokenness. That is, it, it lays bare and unravels the authority of the brokenness to have the say in who we are, for it lays bare the invincible love that sustains us as the beloved, an in, invincibly loved and invincibly lovable that's been buried under the rubble of internalized survival strategies, uh, 
learned in trauma and abandonment. And we believe they have the authority to name who we are, hence the shame, hence the guilt, hence all the rest of it. It's like the idolatry of internalized conditioned woundedness over the infinite love that's infinitely in love with us is infinitely precious in the midst of our woundedness. That's the thing. Furthermore, it even goes on to say, like she's doing in the prayer, is a fearless inventory. You then have to, what's a fearful inventory? A fearful inventory is you already know enough of your woundedness. You're afraid what else is back there. Why? You're afraid it'll be one more thing that you're going to believe in has the authority to name who you are. But what if you already know that none of it has any authority to name who you are? And therefore, the more you bring out the fearless inventory, it just exposes more of the vulnerability, which in being deeply accepted is the openness to which the love flows in that's infinitely more real than all your brokenness and takes you to itself in this. Like this. She continues, If we want to overcome our shame with great honors, we must close ourselves with ourselves. So adorned, I seek Jesus, my sweet Lord, and I find him so quickly by no other means as by those things that are repugnant and burdensome. One should very eagerly step forward with intense desire, ashamed of one's guilt, and with flowing love and humble fear. Then the filth of sin disappears from the divine sight of our Lord. And then lovingly, he begins to cast his radiance toward the soul, and she begins to dissolve out of deeply felt love. That is, it is so disarming to see how infinitely loved you are and infinitely precious you are in the very midst of the all-too-real brokenness uh, that plays itself out and has played itself out in your life. The soul loses all her guilt and all her sorrow, and he, the beloved Jesus, begins to teach her his complete will, then she begins to taste the sweetness he begins to greet her with his Godhead, that the power of the Holy Trinity penetrates fully her soul and her body, and she, she receives true wisdom. And then he begins to caress her, that she becomes weak, that is, is, being, is, is, is being weakened by the caress of the infinite beloved that sees in you this infinite love of itself given to you as your very life. And in being caressed in this way, you're, it, you're, you're weakened by it. And she so begins to drink in all this love that he becomes lovesick for her. That is the very way in which he's infinitely, intimately weakened by being so touched by the love that's infinitely more real and utterly transcends her litany of weaknesses as having authority to name who she is, that love alone has the authority to name who she is. It's in that very weakening that God then love becomes lovesick for her, and they become mutually lovesick unto each other in these inexpressible uh, mutual surrendering to each other in love that is a foretaste of heaven. It's a foretaste of heaven and eternal life. Then he begins to, then in seeing that we can't bear so much of infinite love when we're still in the body. <clears throat> then he begins to limit the intensity because he knows better 
her limits than she knows her, than she herself does. That God knows the tolerance level for us to bear this infinite love that we cannot yet bear insofar as we're still held in the traces of our limitations as having authority over us, as having the authority to name who we are. And so God deliberately out of love backs off on the intensity of the infinite union that transcends and permeates our weaknesses through and through and through for all of eternity. And then she begins longing to show him great faithfulness because she's so grateful. The soul is so grateful for being so unexplainably touched and illumined like this in the intimacy of one's weaknesses filled with this love. And then he begins to strengthen her with holy healing in her soul and all of his gifts. If she then guards against the noble love of her flesh and the alluring sweetness of all earthly things, she will be able to love perfection and gain much praise from God in all things. That is, and I think it means this, not just that we're learning through grace not to be so overtaken by the weaknesses that hurt ourselves and others. And knowing that insofar as we still, like the thorn in the flesh, every time we fall, we know we're, it's just one more opportunity to be sustained by God infinitely loving us in the falling. So we learn little by little to grow in interior strength and groundedness and so on. Soren Kierkegaard, which we'll be looking at later in this series, uh, he puts it this way, Kierkegaard puts it this way. He talks about the leap of faith. And when you come to the end of your own resources, at the, at the edge of the precipice, he says you make this leap like a free fall into the bottomless abyss of God's mercy on you. And in the free fall, he says you're caught by Christ. He says reflected in his eyes, you see your true face. There is no fear there. And this is Mictel's love story that she's saying is, is true of us always like this. Now, dear fellow, there are still two more things you must guard against with holy zeal, for they have never borne fruit. The first is that a man or a woman wants to accomplish much in pursuing good deeds and fine conduct in order to achieve a high church office. And here she starts criticizing the church for the leadership of the church that is itself not grounded in this humility and in this brokenness. And how the, the seduction of empire, of, of searching for a status and achievement in this church. Such an attitude vexes my soul. When such people have then achieved power, their baseness becomes so many, so many faceted that no one voted for them with great enthusiasm is happy with them. <laughs> they then become misguided by honors and their false virtues and turn into vices, the seduction of empire. That the community of the church is a community of infinitely loved broken people. And sometimes the brokenness is in the leadership role of this. The second is when a person is chosen rightfully with no meddling on his part, his or her, the person, like they chose her to be acting superior of the community, a person uh, is chosen for the leadership and then changes so completely that he never feels the urge to leave his office. 
This is a sign of many failings, for even if he is irreproachable in it, he should still be fearful and humble. That is, once you're in, you've outgrown your worthwhile energy to serve the community, but you don't want to leave. And so we need to be very careful of uh, being acknowledged and offered leadership roles, which are really uh, Jesus washing the feet of the disciples is the true service to the world, the true leadership to the world like this. And, um, and I think then this kind of leadership really is also, I feel, it, it can be to, in service to a community or to the service of, and it isn't just the artist surrendering over to the poet or the musician, but to, to the community of people you cannot not give yourself to them in love. And the more you give themselves to love and the sweet surrender of love, in that surrender, this deep love of God uh, it opens up within you and blesses you as it blesses them as, as a blessed life of humble service. And lastly, she uh, continued on in this way uh, into, into uh, old age. And she reached a point of fragility where she became blind. And she wasn't able to dress herself. She wasn't able to feed herself. And she lived in a monastery of Cistercian nuns who took care of her. And not only did she go blind, and not only could she not do anything for herself, but she lost, God took away all traces of the felt sense of God's love. And she becomes to the end of her life in a state of powerlessness. And she says that if, that if God then so wishes her to live this way, then if God wishes her to live this way, she wishes it too. And what she begins to express is deep gratitude for the nuns and the way they care for her as a way she experiences God's love for her in her powerlessness. And so her life comes full circle in, into where the places of the ecstasy in her heart in the places of other poverty and brokenness that forms a circle and the brokenness and the ecstasy, they, they touch each other like this. And she becomes utterly ordinary. She becomes utterly ordinary and utterly falling away from the ability to gain footing by her own power to do anything at all. And so the last two books of The Flowing Light of the Godhead are dictated because she couldn't write it anymore. And she dictated, and she died writing it. And um, the last word she says, she ends her book this way. This is book seven. In this dialogue between herself and her body, between her soul and her body, and death. Then we shall no longer complain then everything that God has done with us will suit us just fine. If you will now only stand fast and keep hold of sweet hope. Obedience is a holy bond. It binds the soul to God and the body to Jesus and the five senses to the Holy Spirit. The longer it binds, the more the soul loves. The less the body preserves itself, the fairer it works shine before God and before people of goodwill. And I'll end with this thought, you know, about her ending. 
You know, when my wife Maureen died here in the living room of Alzheimer's, um, I was so glad I got to be with her when she died. It was such a gift that, that I put in the healing memoir that uh, this poetic image that when we're born, we take in our, we inhale, we take in our first gasp of air, and we go through all of our days. And our last act on this earth is that we exhale, but we don't inhale. And uh, so just as in the first inhalation, we flow from unseen places in God onto the earthly plane. In our death, we vanish away from the earthly plane, turn, returning to the infinite abyss of God from which we came. So the death itself is not an event, it's a cessation. It's the falling away of this. But in the falling away of this is laid bare the deathless beauty of ourself that never falls away, that's eternal. Uh, so now we experience it in a veiled way through consolations and insights and being encouraged by the teachings of these awakened teachers like Mictilt and a contemplative reading of the scriptures. And it's veiled, uh, but deeply felt and lived by day by day. But when we die and pass through the veil of death, it's unveiled unto eternal glory that somehow is obscurely realized even though we're still on earth because it's learning to die of love at the hands of love until nothing's left of us but love. So the image that I gave earlier, so that it says in the crucifixion of Jesus, that when he died, they pierced his heart with a lance, blood and water flowed out as the birth of a child. And then when the blood and water flowed out, there was no more Jesus left in Jesus. And when there was no more Jesus left in Jesus, the only Jesus that was ever really there is manifested unexplainably to this day throughout the whole world. And Jesus says, come follow me. So how can we learn then to be unraveled by love? Or how put it another way? The very fact we're being touched by the beauty of these mystics, we are being unraveled by this love. It's already unfolding. It's already being laid bare in the unresolved matters of our heart. And so Mictel then mentors us in this love and uh, is unexplainably trustworthy uh, throughout our days. So with that then, let's uh, sit in meditation. To sit straight, fold your hands and bow.
im Bauch. So we say the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, now and forever. Amen. Mary, Mother of Contemplatives, pray for us. Meister Eckhart, pray for us. Mechthilde Magdeburg, pray for us. Blessings till next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics, a podcast created by the Center for Action and Contemplation. We're planning to do episodes that answer your questions. So if you have a question, please email us at podcasts at cac.org or send us a voicemail at cac.org forward slash voicemails. All of this information can be found in the show notes. We'll see you again soon. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.